you see phishing attacks, and that's spelled with the PH, where email's constantly been used to try to trick people into clicking on things that they shouldn't click on, but the sophistication of the new email attacks are quite different and very difficult actually to detect and to respond to. Welcome to Focus, a podcast dedicated to the business of higher education. I'm your host, Heather Richmond, and we will be exploring the challenges and opportunities facing today's higher learning institutions. In today's episode, I caught up with Tom Arnold, co-founder of Payment and Security Experts, to discuss new trends in security threats for universities, including the business email compromise, which is a tricky new method of defrauding large transactions between institutions and vendors. Thanks for joining us today, Tom. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I know that you've been in the security and fraud detection business for some time now. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience and really educating on payment security and data protection? Certainly. Uh, my experience goes way back in the industry from the earliest days of the uh, Internet e-commerce and fraud, where the rule of thumb was on the Internet, nobody knows you're a dog is the bottom line. So uh, early days, we were seeing everything from auctions where, you know, the phony baseball was being sold to all sorts of tricks. And those have evolved over the years into rather significant uh, issues that relate to fraud or they relate to theft of information that has been sold elsewhere. So that's a little bit of my background. Yeah, well, I know in, in particular that payment technology and security have really evolved pretty rapidly over the last decade. Can you tell us how this evolution has offered more secure payment methods in, on one hand, but also exposed some payment methods for fraud in others? Yeah, that's exactly correct. Uh, recently, over the past few years, we've seen the uh, inclusion of chips on credit cards and specifically what is called EMV chips and EMV chips have greatly reduced the fraud that was caused by bad guys stealing data and creating uh, fake cards, if you would. But that has just caused a lot of the fraud to evolve towards electronic commerce. It's caused fraud uh, to evolve into skimming at things like uh, automatic teller machines where they're stealing data and trying to steal the pens uh, as they're entered on the ATM devices. So the creativity of the bad guys can never be underestimated is really the bottom line as to what they're capable of doing and how they're capable of stealing by trick or device, which is what fraud is actually defined as, the theft of property from another by trick or device. And that's, that's the, what the evolution has caused. So is there an end to all fraud? No, definitely not. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I know that data breaches in general continue to make headlines and colleges and universities have really become a target for these bad guys. What are some of the latest security trends that you're seeing? Well, we're seeing a variety of trends uh, related to the electronic commerce side of things, uh, especially related to institutions. And we're seeing some very, very troubling trends out of our forensics team uh, specifically that are, are evolving and are actually noted by the FBI and the Secret Service as being some of the most uh, 
uh, intense issues, if you would, or the most troubling issues uh, that are occurring out there. So we see basically um, where third-party content is added to websites uh, and calls are being made out to third-party content providers, which means the target for a compromise a lot of times is the third-party content provider who then injects you know, to a consumer's browser a script that's capable of capturing the card data as it's entered. That's just one type. And the more troubling trend right now uh, we call business email compromise because email systems to a large extent, the security standards, let me explain, the security standards focus on PII, they focus on con protection of credit card data and payment data, so everyone's real concerned about that. And a lot of times the email servers themselves don't receive the same level of scrutiny and the same level of protection which causes a potential for a, a bad actor to step in between something like a transaction that is from a university to a vendor who's supplying them and an invoice to that vendor specifically or to the university that ends up getting paid out to the bad guy instead of being paid to the actual vendor is a good example. And the email server is the primary target for that sort of action. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I'd say generally from a PCI scope perspective, email systems really aren't normally in scope, are they? No, they're not. And they're left very much to um, just having a username and password, somebody logging in via the web to collect their email, and that's it. And you see phishing attacks, and that's spelled with the PH, <laughs> where email's constantly been used to try to trick people into clicking on things that they shouldn't click on, but the sophistication of the new email attacks are quite different and very difficult to actually to detect and to respond to uh, when a loss actually occurs. Yeah, I know we were talking before, it sounds like the bad guy is really getting in the middle and and spoofing both sides as both the vendor and the payer, for instance, right? Yes, and as a matter of fact, they go to the extent of even registering domains on the network. As people may know, when you're sending it to uh, uh, an email to myschool.com or whatever the university might be or university.edu, um, they register uh, a domain that might be close and have only one character. Uh, a good example is it, it might have uh, an underbar character instead of a space or a dot uh, that might be in there. They'll do things like that that will make it very difficult unless somebody's very, very diligent looking at it to understand what's happening. So let me give you an example of a case uh, that we recently worked where the attackers gained access to the Office 365 email server, and they sat on the server just watching email for about six months as the institution was exchanging information from, say, the accounts payable department from a vendor for services rendered. And at that point, they create basically a site and a mail server that mimics the vendor and also a site and mail server that sort of mimics the institution at that point. 
And then when they actually make the attack, they begin making messages and sending messages that look like they're coming from the vendor saying, here, you need to pay this invoice. And they may change basically the mechanism of payment, specifically that says the payment should be routed to somewhere else. And meanwhile, while the vendor's sitting there going, why haven't I been paid? And they're sending messages saying, hey, here, you know, you usually pay your invoices in 30 days or very quickly. Why haven't you paid me? The bad guy's actually answering on behalf of the person in the accounts payable department and saying, yes, we've got it. We're a little behind. We've had a system failure uh, type situation. Their objective, the bad actor's objective, is to try to get the payment sent to an account that they're under control of instead of the vendor being in control of specifically, and then spend basically five to seven days because that's what it would take for a wire transfer to be reversed uh, if the feds got involved within the first five to seven days of the loss. Once they pass the five to seven days, they just disappear. And the losses can be staggering. The case that we worked on was a single transaction of approximately $97,000 in one throw, uh, basically. And if you look at the cost that the bad guys had to perform the act, they probably spent 1500 bucks for domains and other things to make themselves in the middle, basically, of the email uh, threads themselves. Plus, since they're monitoring all the internal emails at that point, they're watching to see if they've been detected. And if they've been detected, they'll back out is classically what they'll do. So they're monitoring what's going on at the time that they're actually committing the criminal act, basically. And that's what makes these things so difficult to respond to and so difficult to find. Oftentimes, the victim may be the university or swing it around where the university has an invoice that they're sending to someone else. They become the victim and losing the funds. And it's very hard to detect within that five to seven days to try to reverse the transaction. So that's basically what's going on. Uh, and that was difficult to explain. It's fairly complex. Uh, but at the bottom line, it's about securing the email server, training the staff, and learning basically how to begin to detect any of these sorts of anomalies. And specifically, if accounts payable receives a statement that says, hey, you need to change to do this, what out-of-band method is going to be used to approve that that change is actually legitimate is the, uh, the third thing I would say. Wow. So that, that does sound like a whole different level of complexity of what was originally called the phishing scheme, right? So any tips right. on what to look for? It sounds like, a, again, accounts payable, if they're told to do something different. Any other tips of what to look for on that to see if the bad guys are trying to get in? Well, the major things, there's, there's sort of two ways to look at this. There's a question of prevention, and then there's a question of detection. So let's look at those two topics separately. Okay. On the prevention side... You have people who are accessing their email via smartphones, via you know tablet devices, via laptop computers, logging in from a coffee shop or logging in from home, or desktop machines logging in from inside the network. 
it's extremely important that the users logging into the email server actually be authenticated. And one of the only ways to actually really do this is using a mechanism that in the industry we refer to as multi-factor authentication. It's a little bit of a pain in the butt for the users, but when you log in, you have to then provide a code from your your smartphone that says, here's the six-digit code that goes along with my login. That will go a long ways to protect the mail environment itself uh, specifically. If someone's logging in from inside the uh, local network of the university and you know the machine is inside the local network of the university, you can make it a little easier, but still you should monitor it. The second thing is if they're outside or using a smartphone or using any sort of device like that, it's really, really important that when they, these people log into their systems that they actually get something that is proving to the fact that they are the person logging in. That's an important feature on the prevention side of things. The other key thing on the prevention side, if instructions are received, from someone that says, hey, we've changed our bank account, we've altered something, and we want you to do this, there needs to be an out-of-band. And when I say out-of-band, I mean a telephone call uh, specifically that says, call to validate it. You're never wrong to check if you get something and you go, you know, did you actually send me this? I'm going to make a phone call off to the accounts payable department and say, did you actually send me this? or the accounts payable department is making a phone call to the person with the invoice saying, is this true? Did you send me this? The next thing is if you're changing a payment method and you've been paying by check or ACH, uh, automated clearinghouse is what that stands for, but that's a, think of it as an electronic check, and you suddenly get instructions that you're now supposed to do a wire uh, instead then have a second validation point where that has to pause and be revalidated by yet another person within the organization. We call this dual control in the sense that one person, one accounts payable person acting on their own doesn't just change the system right then and there to make the change because they think it's valid. Another set of eyes look at that change and validate that change as being okay to actually do. And that's probably one of the most important sort of defenses that's out there. On the detection side of things, if a payment goes out and you get basically some sort of query or some sort of follow-up, basically the accounts payable department, and I hate to say this because there can be a large volume of these, but for any track in transaction, say that's over $10,000 as a sort of a ceiling limit, Basically, that there's a follow-up that's sent saying, did you receive this? And this is coming to you, basically, and you need to expect it. But that follow-up has to go absolutely to a trusted person and possibly should be done out of band as well. If there's a detection that you've fallen victim to one of these, or you call the vendor and the vendor says, we never sent you instructions to change that. We're just expecting to see the check as always is the answer you get. It is extremely important that you reach out to law enforcement as fast as you can at that point. A lot of organizations and a lot of universities and a lot of organizations as a whole 
don't want to admit they're a victim and don't want to make the police report right away. It is extremely important that the FBI gets notified that you've fallen victim to something, especially if it involves a wire transfer, because the clock is ticking. You have five to seven days for them to act, basically, and to stop the transaction and potentially recover the funds is the important piece of that versus just being a victim and now having to file insurance claims and all that sort of thing. So that's the other piece. So prevention and detection together have to work together. Yeah, that's great because you have that really short window that you have to work within. So you have to have that awareness always happening for sure. And it sounds like... Yeah, and it sounds like also that the, many of the threats are, are happening to the actual network infrastructure. Can you expand on how the bad guys are getting in there? Well, on the network infrastructure side, which is uh, still becoming a, a challenge, and this goes back to the prevention side of things uh, specifically, a lot of times they're going to mix sort of techniques. I talked about techniques where elements of a website or a web interface are modified so that they'll communicate with the bad guys specifically and that there's potentially third-party content coming into play uh, as well. So in these situations, a lot of times the point of infiltration where the bad guys will actually try to achieve access to the mail server or they'll try to achieve access to something involves a step that is very similar to the thefts that we see right now in e-commerce sites where a malicious script that will be added to a system and then passwords will be taken and then you'll see login attempts uh, and you'll potentially even see a a classic example. We refer to it in the industry as a dot forward, but it's a forward that is added to the account. So I steal your credentials using a router, using a technique that's been altered, basically. And by stealing your credentials, I then log in and tell your mail server, oh, by the way, duplicate every message to this account and forward it to me in Russia, as a good example. Now I just get everything you get, and I'm monitoring the server. Yes, I have access to it, but I'm not actually on there reading your email at the same time because that's slightly dangerous and I might be detected. This way, all the mail's coming my direction, and I can now monitor and begin the attack is what I can actually do as the bad guy. So in those situations, again, we fall back to the prevention of using multi-factor authentication and definitely changing the passwords on a frequent basis and having good, complex passwords. It's not just the word my school one, my school two, my school three. It's not just something like, believe it or not, the word password or the word secret code. We've seen all these as passwords. We've seen passwords on mail servers that are so old, they date back years since they were last changed. So unfortunately, changing the password becomes an important piece of this. If you can't use multi-factor authentication, For certain areas, especially financial and accounting areas, passwords should be changed 30 to 45 days, which is much tighter than what you see within the the PCI standard. The other key detection point is looking at the logs and scanning the logs for the locations that are coming in to attach to the accounts. Frequently, users, we are all beings of habit, 
We go to the same coffee shops. We are at home. We have an IP address for home. It's when you see out-of-country or out-of-area IP addresses now accessing the email server for a given account, that's definitely a red flag to watch for, and especially if you see simultaneous logins to the email servers themselves. Those are important to work, watch for as well. So it sounds like our IT departments uh, have a lot on their hands to be looking at and making sure not only having multi-factor authentication, but really having that awareness and checking to see if anything's off. Is that something they should do, obviously, probably on a daily basis, right? Well, that's correct. Uh, I would hope that the IT departments of most institutions would use a, a security monitoring tool on the network that's monitoring the logs. And this is a matter of crafting some rules that say, this is sort of the location and geography that we would expect, you know, Mary and the accounts payable department to be logging into. And now let's look at what IP addresses are coming in, what failed logins are occurring to the mail server itself. Now this assumes that you're running the mail server. When it's a cloud server like Office 365, or, and I'm just using that as an example. We could use Gmail. We could use any of the Google Docs uh, systems as well. It's much more difficult for the IT department to watch those environments. So when it comes to utilizing the cloud environments, really using multi-factor authentication is the major item to do because you frequently don't have access to those logs to be able to feed those to your security information system to figure out, hey, what's going on here? So there's, you know, different approaches for prevention depending on the environment that you're dealing with. Yeah, so there's so much going on, and you know so much, Tom. I have to ask, how do you pay, or do you feel comfortable paying at all? Absolutely. It's not a problem. As a consumer, you know, I, I could give some tips to the consumer side of things, but absolutely, a consumer absolutely should, you know, kind of know the site you're dealing with. Um, use a credit card because there's laws that protect the credit cards. Debit cards are a little more difficult, but there's still laws that protect the transactions for those as well as you're online specifically. Unsolicited things that sound too good to be true are too good to be true. So don't fall for that. You know, don't trust any anything that basically comes unsolicited. And the next major item is to make certain that your computers, your smartphones, your tablets are all kept up to date. Patching is extremely important. And that is extremely important for the IT department on the server side and on the e-commerce server side as well to maintain that patching regime patching not only the servers themselves and the operating system, but patching the applications as well is another extremely important thing. And I think educating your family members and educating your children on safe browsing and shopping and not loaning your payment card out to even family members uh, to use when they're trying to do things, whether it's a PayPal account or otherwise, you know, when it comes to somebody using one of your accounts, like if your kid's going to do it, you finish the transaction for them, uh, basically, is you know what I suggest out there. But absolutely, I feel comfortable using my card, working with it, because I know at the end of the day that if somebody breaks into the site that I was at, steals the card, and starts using it fraudulently, I have the absolute right as a consumer to, to challenge that, to charge it back, to dispute the transactions, to notify 
the uh, card issuer that I need a new card, that my card's been taken. And I can tell you that the banks and the, the banks on the merchant side, that is, along with the credit card companies, do a lot of work to watch for bad transactions as they're taking place. So as a consumer, uh, I feel very, very comfortable. Absolutely. So, so along the lines of payments, are you a mobile wallet guy? Um, I am. Um, as far as, um, you know, I, I trust and use my Apple Pay all the time. Uh, basically, I use it overseas as well. And uh, so when it comes to transactions like that, yes. I think more importantly versus on an e-commerce front, instead of using a mobile wallet, uh, I will utilize tools uh, that will track my passwords. I will have complex passwords that are unique to each site. Uh, I will track those passwords in a, in a password vault uh, as I log into the accounts themselves as I use them. And uh, I am very religious about changing my passwords as well. Uh, the devices and tools that I use to track my passwords also contain the credit cards and payment card information. And I will use those devices to fill in the forms uh, basically as well. So yes, I am what you would call a mobile wallet user uh, specifically. That's great. And it sounds like really the responsibility of paying attention to potential fraud protecting is really on both sides, the consumer side, as well as our IT departments. And a lot of times I think we try to push that off to somebody else. So what else Correct. do our, our listeners need to know about new trends and security threats and, and how to be prepared? Well, obviously, one of the largest things to do uh, out there, you, if you're considering the standards, standards are created at a specific point in time and they may age. So the current PCI data security standard right now is about two and a half, three years old. Uh, but it's looking at, uh, and you know, as it was crafted, it's over three years old. It's probably three and a half years old when they were contemplating the threats at that period of time. So just as a, as a university and you're running the uh, e-commerce uh, site or you're allowing students to pay their tuition online, um, you have to realize that things like the uh, payment card industry standard are fairly old. So the one of the biggest things uh, to understand is how to do threat research and understand what the current threats are specifically that are attacking uh, institutions. One good example of that right now would be what's referred to as MageCart. And MageCart, uh, really, if you think three and a half years ago, was quite different uh, than it is today. And so to keep abreast of what's going on, to adjust your detection and your protection or prevention mechanisms, you end up having to keep current with the threats and understand what types of issues might be confronting both your student and your student population, as well as your staff uh, at the universities themselves, and how you need to react to those specifically to defend your systems better. Um, that's probably one of the major items out there is keeping current on what the current threats are to the environment that you're dealing with. Most institutions do not spend nearly enough time understanding what the current threats are and how they have to adjust to them. Larger institutions do this, but the smaller institutions can have serious challenges. 
Thanks, Tom, so much for all your insights. You're more than welcome. And uh, just remember, on the Internet, nobody knows you're a dog. <laughs> That's great. Well, it sounds like there will always be new data security threads that colleges and universities need to be aware of to help protect their campuses. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Focus. Don't forget to subscribe so you can stay up to date on the business of higher education. For more information, check us out at touchnet.com.